What's going on, everyone? Welcome into the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to the podcast on Spotify and on Apple Music. You can follow our social pages, too, on Twitter and on Facebook. So good to be back uh, this week, everyone. Uh, I know recording on a, on a Tuesday is a little bit uh, out of the routine. You know, typically we'd record Mondays, but I figured give everyone the day off with the holiday yesterday. So hopefully everyone enjoyed their long weekend. Uh, gave you an extra day to, to celebrate the uh, Celtics win Game 7 against the Heat. Um, obviously we're going to be talking plenty of Celtics today. Um, that's kind of where our focus is going to be today. Got some other things to get to also uh, take a look at uh, kind of a quick preview as to uh, who we got on Guest Friday this week. Uh, speaking of Guest Friday, we'd like to extend a thank you uh, to John Sexton for coming on uh, Guest Friday last week. It was a great interview. If you haven't uh, listened to it, please go and listen to it. It was a great interview. John's a, a great person to talk to. Um, so uh, as I said on both of the social pages, you can... Uh, Catch John and the Redwoods in the PLL. Um, they open their season uh, this this weekend in Albany, New York. John's team, the Redwoods, will be taking on the Atlas. That game is at uh, five. I think it's yeah five o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. So you can check out John and his uh, Redwoods teammates then. Um, so I think without further ado, we'll get into it today. Get to the Celtics and. Yeah, it's uh, still, it still is uh, kind of hard to believe that this team is um, in the NBA Finals, clinching the berth with a Game 7 win on Sunday by the skin of their teeth. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but that was uh, one of those games where it seemed to take years off my life, um, just watching that game and kind of the, the ebbs and flows of a sporting event, I think especially a a game seven where you felt like, you know, every five minutes there was a big swing of momentum and you figured, okay, you know, which team is going to come out on top? You know, oddly enough, the Celtics were ahead the entire game, which is kind of wild um, because you really thought that it was truly anyone's game. I think at certain points in the second half, you know, the Celtics obviously came out firing in the first quarter, but, you know, obviously hard to kind of hold that type of momentum throughout an entire game. I think just based on the team that they were playing, the fact that they were playing on the road, you know, playing in a game seven, but, um, you know, credit to the Celtics for being able to hang on. You know, obviously there were some scary moments at the end of that game. You know, the Heat went on a 11 nothing run to, you know, get a chance to take the lead on uh, Jimmy Butler's potential go-ahead three-pointer with 15, 16 seconds left. Um, you know, I think that, you take a look at that shot from the Heat's perspective, probably not the shot that you want to get, or probably not the shot that you want to take, you know, down two points with, you know, 16 seconds left and you're in transition, you know, Jimmy Butler taking a three-pointer, which to his credit, I think that he had played unbelievable in the last two games. He probably was the best player in the series, the last two games of the series. Um, you know, I don't have really an issue with, Jimmy Butler taking a shot, but I just think that particular shot is not the shot that, you know, they should have been looking for. But 
you know, hey, to the Celtics' credit, they they got the rebound, got fouled, you know, came up with another stop, um, and were able to close it out. So uh, pretty impressive that the Celtics have been able to get to this point, you know, winning a Game 7 on the road, their second Game 7 win in the playoffs. Um, and it just, you know, it's uh, amazing to think about where this team was, um, you know, at 18 and 21, or even to think about where this team was at the beginning of the season, you know, really that coming in with a first-year head coach, uh, a team that I think certainly there were, you know, expectations that this team was going to be better than the team last year. But, you know, it was hard to know. Rookie head coach, rookie, or not rookie coaching staff, but like a whole new coaching staff, you know, it kind of was one of those things that you really weren't sure how it was going to go. And obviously the first half of the season, you know, things kind of went like they did the entire you know, the entire season before, where the team just couldn't really gel. The team couldn't really find any type of momentum. And, you know, the Celtics lose that game to the Knicks on that buzzer beater, you know, after leading by 25 points. And, you know, you thought, okay, is this, is, could this be it for this group? You know, I think that I was one of the staunch supporters of you keep Jalen and Jason together no matter what happens. Um, but I think, you know, the Celtics became or started to play really well defensively. They really started to mesh. You know, they started to, you know, play better and more connected, more together offensively. Um, and it really spearheaded this turnaround. So um, just taking a look kind of at the games of the series that, you know, obviously with this podcast being a weekly podcast, a lot changed you know, since we last talked about the Celtics a week ago with, you know, the team trailing two games to one, the Celtics obviously able to win games four and five with some really good defense. You know, I think that really was the story of the Celtics taking the 3-2 series lead, giving themselves a chance to, you know, close out the series in Boston. You know, ultimately it didn't happen. The Celtics didn't make enough plays down the stretch. The Heat kind of imposed their will late in the fourth quarter almost like they did in Game 7, but obviously they couldn't win Game 7, but they did win Game 6, you know, obviously. There's a lot to be said about the officiating in Game 6. You know, I think that the officiating crew definitely missed a couple of calls that, you know, could have gone in the Celtics' favor. The game could have turned out differently. You know, the game also could have turned out differently if Jalen Brown had, you know, made the free throws late in the game. But, you know, obviously sitting here talking about a finals berth, doesn't really make sense to spend a lot of time on that game six loss. But, you know, just the fact that the Celtics were able to come out and play high intensity in the first quarter, you know, really ended up kind of being the difference in the game um, in game seven. And the Celtics improved to 6-0 and after a loss in the playoffs. They've not lost back-to-back games in, in months. You know, and then you look at this team that's 7-2 and on the road and... You know, it's a it's a really good road record, and I think even considering that you're going to have to go on the road again, you know, the Celtics have not had home court uh, in the next two, or didn't have home court in the Eastern Conference Finals, won't have it in the NBA Finals. Um, but I think looking at that 7-2 and record and looking at how well they've played on the road in this postseason, you know, you really don't feel like not having home court is a huge issue. You know, you look at the two games that they lost, 
you know, granted one of them was against the Heat, but, you know, you didn't have Marcus Smart, you didn't have Al Horford in that game, and then the other game you lost to the Bucks, you know, 103-101 on that, you know, you know, missed tipping at the buzzer, or or Horford's tipping at the buzzer that ended up being, like, after the buzzer, but it's like, you look at those two games, those are the only two games that they've lost on the road, so, you know, that should give you confidence that they can be able to maybe win a game or two um, out in San Francisco. So uh, we'll talk further about like, a finals preview in a little bit, but I think focusing on this Celtics team and the things that they did well in this series is kind of where we're going to, or where we're going to kind of continue to go. Um, you know, I thought game seven, the Celtics got a really good performance um, out of Jason Tatum. You know, I think that anytime the Celtics have come off of a loss, he looks really good in that next game. You know, 26 points, 10 rebounds, 6 assists. Ended up winning the um, Larry Bird MVP, of, or the Eastern Conference Finals MVP, which is named after Larry Bird. Um, you know, you look at what Horford did, not a lot scoring-wise, but 14 rebounds, 2 blocks, steal. You know, he was huge defensively in that fourth quarter, I think, as the Celtics were trying to hold off the heat, you know, he really came up with some big rebounds. Um, you know, Smart had a really strong game, and I think that's also another thing that I've noticed when the Celtics have kind of a, a bad loss, a loss that I think you look at and you say, okay, the Celtics really should have won that game. Tatum responds, but so does Marcus Smart, and I think that he was kind of the key to this game. I know that a lot of people will say, okay, he took a lot of three-point shots at the end of the game that were not good shots, and I'll agree with that, but I think you look at what he did, 24 points, five assists, two steals, you know, kind of gave you enough scoring-wise because you really didn't get a lot of scoring from other places other than Jalen and Jason who combined for 50 points. But I also thought Grant Williams made some, made some shots off the bench. You know, Derek White made a couple threes. He's going to be really important in this uh, NBA Finals series against the Warriors. But um, I think Smart does deserve a lot of credit for a good game in Game 7. You know, I think Jalen Brown was pretty good as well. You know, I would have liked for him to make another three-pointer, only made one. But, you know, ultimately it wasn't really that much of a difference. Um, the Celtics honestly did survive a pretty good game from Bam Adebayo, who... Um, had a double-double, 25 points, 11 rebounds. You know, Butler obviously with the 35, but it really seemed like kind of the... One of the themes of this series was the Heat really couldn't get consistent scoring from anyone else other than Jimmy Butler. Um, and honestly, he wasn't even consistent in the entire series. You know, he had three games in a row where he scored a total of 27 points. So it's like, you know, even he wasn't consistent. And I think that kind of was the biggest difference in this series is that the Heat just couldn't get enough help um, from anyone else. You know, did Hero's injury have a bit to do with that? Sure. But I also think that he didn't necessarily play well in the playoffs, um, you know, even before getting hurt. You know, you look at the numbers that he put up was the reason why he won sixth man of the year. But, you know, the numbers definitely took a bit of a nosedive um, in the playoffs. But, you know, I think that Hero's injury really doesn't have a lot to do with how the series went. You know, I think it just, you look at statistically, the Heat just couldn't get anyone else to 
know, score the ball consistently. Like, obviously, Adebayo had a couple of good games, but he also had a couple of games where he disappeared. You know, I think you look at the, the points per game of the Heat, you know, Butler averaged 25.6. He was amazing. Um, you know, there could have been an argument made that he could have won the, the conference finals MVP with a series that he put together, but, you know, Adebayo averaged 15 and 8, you know, which is not... It's not terrible, but it's like you would like him to elevate his game, you know, and then after that, Oladipo was the next highest scorer, averaged under 10, 10 points per game. So, you know, that kind of kind of ended up being a huge issue for the Heat that they couldn't get, you know, that secondary scoring. The Celtics had four players that averaged double digits for the series, Tatum Brown, Marcus Smart, um, and Derek White, and then Horford averaged 9.8, so... You know, the Celtics did a good job of kind of spreading it around. You know, key guys got baskets at key times. You know, I think Derek White, in this series as a whole, he probably has looked the best that he's looked since coming over from the Spurs. You know, I would say, honestly, the last two games, he played really, really good, really, really well. So, you know, he's going to need to keep that up if the Celtics are going to beat the, the Warriors because... I think just with how much, how we, we know how how well Golden, Golden State can score the basketball um, for the Celtics to be able to get consistent scoring from him and Peyton Pritchard, I think it's going to be really important um, in this series. You know, I think that there was an interesting note that I think I read in the paper, it was an article written by um, Adam Himmelsbach in the Globe, you know, mentioning something about how, you know, the Celtics didn't use Pritchard a lot toward the end of the Heat series because it seemed like, you know, every time Pritchard was in the game, the Heat tried to, you know, focus on that mismatch, try to put Butler on him. And I think that, you know, the Warriors probably are more of a dangerous offensive team, but I also think they're not going to, I don't know if they're going to necessarily focus on Pritchard, try to get a mismatch. You know, I think that he could have more more minutes in this series because the Celtics wouldn't be worried about, you know, someone physical matching up against him. Um, you know, Peyton's a good one-on-one -on -one defender, but I think you have someone who's as physical as Jimmy Butler, you know, it ends up kind of being an issue, but I don't really think the Warriors have anyone like that, that, you know, their kind of the key to their game is, is physicality. So, you know, you could see Pritchard getting some more minutes. You know, I thought that he played well in some of the games that he played, but obviously didn't really get consistent minutes in the last two games. You know, he averaged 15 minutes a game for the series, but it didn't seem like he played much in the last two games. So um, I would be curious to see if his minutes maybe increase slightly. Um, you know, get into more of talking about the Warriors in a minute, but I did think that it made sense to mention uh, the series that Al Horford had and just the season that he's had. Um, he's just been, he's been a godsend for this Celtics team. Um, you know, I think that a lot of people kind of weren't sure what to make of, what to make of him, you know, after he came over in the Kemba Walker trade um, last summer. You know, I think a lot of people were worried, you know, does he really still have legs? And... I mean, he has proven that he's been, you know, just as good, you know, if not better at times than he was in the last, for with his last two seasons in Oklahoma City. 
um, and in Philadelphia, but you know, playoffs, he's been, he's been tremendous. You know, I think that obviously he's never going to blow anyone away with his stats, you know, 11.9 points, 9.6 rebounds, 3.5 assists, but you look at his shooting percentage, 50% in the field, you know, 43% from three, you know, he had a huge series um, against the Bucks. I think offensively, maybe wasn't as strong in the Heat series, but I think, you know, just all the little things that he's been able to do um, have really helped this team and really kind of helped this team get over the hump. I think that, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for how well he's played and how well he's, you know, helped this Celtics team play. You know, I think that, you know, Tatum obviously was tremendous in uh, the majority of this series, but, you know, the Celtics don't win that series if it's not for how not for Al Horford, you know, they certainly don't beat Milwaukee if he, you know, isn't on the team. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for, you know, being able to kind of turn back the clock, if you will, um, but also just kind of doing whatever the team asks of him. Uh, you know, his season stats are not going to blow you away. You know, he averaged 10 points and eight rebounds. Um, you know, shooting percentages were actually down from his career numbers, but I think he just does so much, so many other little things that I think kind of go unnoticed in the box score, but really it was a huge part of their success. And I think, you know, a lot of us um, are really proud of what he's done and the fact that he's gotten to the NBA finals for the first time in his career is just, it made that game seven win that much more special. Uh, Horford playing 140 I think it's 140 or 141 playoff games. 140, 141 playoff games without reaching the finals, which is an NBA record. So uh, good for Al. And I think, you know, Brad Stevens certainly deserves a lot of credit for that trade, uh, bringing in Al and, you know, trusting that he had legs that he could play, but also trusting his leadership ability. And I know that when he was with the Celtics prior, you know, he did do a great job of being a guy that the young players really enjoy having on the team because he's someone that can just settle them down. He can kind of be a calming presence. And, you know, both Brad and, and Al Horford deserve a lot of credit for the Celtics, this Celtics team reaching the NBA Finals. I know that a lot of people will say, oh, you know, it's all Danny Ainge because of the draft picks and all that. But the Celtics don't make the NBA Finals without Al Horford. Um, and you could argue that Derek White, while not being, you know, a huge scorer, has really helped the team and has really made kind of a seamless transition into this team. You know, certainly the Celtics would like to see him make some shots at a higher clip. Um, you know, it seemed to improve over the last two games, so hopefully that's a sign of things to come. But I think that Brad Stevens deserves a lot of credit for the moves that he's made to kind of put this team in this position. You know, curious to see what the offseason looks like if the Celtics can try to surround Jalen and Jason with some more shooting. But, you know, geez, if they can win an NBA championship with this roster, you know, I think that the the the, per, the people that built this team deserve a lot of credit. Um, so I think going forward, taking a look at the uh, Warriors series, the Celtics, uh, I think, match up pretty well against Golden State. You know, I think one of the biggest questions is going to be the health of Robert Williams. Now, 
Obviously, Rob has played in the last two games, but doesn't really look himself. Um, and I think it was very obvious in Game 7, he only played 14, 15 minutes. Um, so I think it's kind of hard to expect that he's going to be just back to, back to his normal self and being able to be kind of that pogo stick jumper and that, you know, great shot blocker. Um, but I think if he can even be close to 100%, it could make a huge difference for the Celtics because, you know, Golden State, while is a great outside shooting team and we know what they can do, they also tend to score a lot at the rim. And I think having a rim protector like Rob Williams in the lineup could make a huge difference. Um, because I think if the Warriors know that they're going to have a hard time going to the basket, they may, you know, avoid that. And I think as much as Golden State is a great outside shooting team, the Celtics probably want them to be taking as many threes as they can possibly take, um, you know, specifically contested threes. Um, because I think that's where Golden State can kill you is if they are getting to the basket, if they're getting inside and they're getting easy layups, then it kind of opens it opens the game up for the three-point shooting. So, you know, having someone like Robert Williams back there could make a huge difference uh, for the Celtics team. But obviously, the health of his knee is going to kind of be, is kind of going to be telling um, to see how much he can play. Because, you know, obviously, if he's playing 15 minutes a night, he's not really making that much of an impact. You know, the Celtics probably would like him to be playing upwards of 25 minutes a game. But, you know, obviously it's going to depend on the health of, of his knee, which I think, you know, the Celtics have said that he's just kind of going to be questionable um, the rest of the playoffs, and that's just how it's going to go. That, you know, you could have him available game to game, you know, or he's not playing a lot of minutes game to game. So that's going to be a huge thing to watch for. Um, I also think how the Celtics approach um, Steph Curry as a defender you know, I think that the Celtics could try to, you know, it's hard because I'm not sure how exactly this would work, but I think the Celtics will want him to work as much as they, as, as much as he can, or as much as they can make him on defense, because then I think it kind of doesn't tire, I don't want to say tire him out, because I don't think that's the right thing to say, but like, make him work harder on defense than maybe he would like, um, because I think if the Celtics can do that, you know, maybe he, you know, it's, it's hard because like, I want to say that, okay, making him play defense, making him, you know, chase around Jason Tatum or something like that would make him tired. But I don't want to say that, oh, you know, if you make him tired, that's going to make the difference and he's going to start missing shots. I mean, obviously he's the best shooter in NBA history. So it's like, you can't just be like, oh, you know, if they make him work, he's going to miss shots um, because it probably won't work like that. But I think over the course of the series, it might become, you know, more of an issue because it is interesting that, you know, I think this is though more due to the Celtics defense. When you've looked at Jimmy Butler and Giannis in the last two series, the two of them look absolutely gassed late in games. And so I think, that kind of is more due to the Celtics defense and how, you know, hard they play defensively. But I think it could be the opposite, that the Celtics could make Steph Curry work defensively and that could kind of tire him out. But I also think if Marcus Smart's going to be chasing him around the entire series, that could also make him really tired. So I think 
you know, finding a way to kind of slow Curry down and more force him to focus more on his defensive game, you know, could be a key for the Celtics. I think that, you know, obviously the Warriors have multiple guys that can beat you. You know, Clay Thompson, we've all seen what he can do um, with his, you know, years in the NBA. But I think kind of focusing on, on Curry kind of being that number one guy might help the Celtics, you know, not saying that, okay, they should double team Curry and leave Clay Thompson open. But I think Curry is kind of the head of the snake, so to speak. Um, but, you know, Thompson's a great player. I think that Andrew Wiggins has played really well at times in the playoffs. Jordan Poole has been huge off the bench. I think the bench play is going to, could be what decides the series. Um, you know, the Warriors are a really deep team. You know, they played, you know, 12 guys pretty regularly um, in the playoffs. And I think that could be a detriment to the Celtics because we know that the Celtics really only play three guys, four guys off the bench and Golden State can kind of bring in a whole second unit. So I'm going to be curious to see if the Celtics give Aaron Neesmith some minutes because I thought that, you know, at times against the Heat when he got minutes, he played well. Um, but I think if they're going to give him minutes, he's going to have to knock down knock down some shots. And I think same thing with Derek White um, and Peyton Pritchard. I think that one way to kind of offset the bench that Golden State has is if the Celtics, if their bench guys can knock down shots um, and knock down some threes, because I think that might help, you know, offset what Golden State can do. So, you know, Robert Williams is something to keep an eye on. I think the bench definitely, um, but I think also, you know, how do the Celtics match up defensively um, against Golden State? You know, I think that there probably is going to be a lot of one-on-one. -on -one. You know, the Warriors don't really play much of a zone defense as much as the Heat do. So, you know, it could have a lot to do with one-on-one -on -one matchups. Um, I like what the Celtics have in terms of their bigs. I think especially if Robert Williams can play the amount of minutes that the Celtics want him to. You know, I think that as good as Draymond Green is, the Celtics, I think, have a decided advantage with their bigs. Um, but obviously that could change if... Robert Williams, you know, can't play heavy minutes, and the Celtics have to turn to someone like Daniel Tice or Grant Williams to play more minutes. You know, Grant, I think, has been kind of off and on a little bit in these playoffs. You know, I think that he's had his great moments, but he's also had some moments where he picks up too many fouls, you know, and is a little bit careless. And so I think, you know, if, if Robert Williams has some injury issues and Grant Williams has to play big minutes, you know, Grant has to play controlled basketball. You know, I feel like sometimes he can get a little bit, he can try to do too much and he can pick up quick fouls. Um, and so I think, you know, he's going to have to play with the correct temperament in this series because the Celtics really, you know, especially if Robert Williams can't play big minutes, they can't afford to have Grant Williams picking up kick quick fouls and you know Daniel Tice has to play 20 minutes a night now I think Tice is not I don't think Tice is that bad but I don't think you want him playing a lot of minutes in this series because I think Golden State could take advantage of him a little bit defensively um, but I think you know I think that again this is going to be a really tough series you know this is going to be a series that you know the Celtics could win but I think that they have to 
play really good basketball and can play that the entire 48 minutes because I think if you saw the way that the Celtics closed Game 7, they can't do that against the Warriors because the Warriors will kill you. You know, they're a team that is going to kill you from, from the outside with three-pointers. And so the Celtics have to be very careful with the basketball because Golden State's one of the best teams that gets out in transition. But Golden State also needs to take care of the ball because they've had some turnover issues, especially in the games that they've lost. So, you know, the turnover battle is going to be really huge. Um, and if the Celtics can, you know, have an advantage there, it could end up being a difference or the difference in the series. So looking forward to seeing what the series looks like for the Celtics. Um, you know, the Warriors also have some injuries of their own. Gary Payton II has been out um, since the, I think, Game 3 of the Conference Finals when he got hurt after the fall from the hard foul from Dylan Brooks. So he is out, although not sure about his status. Andre Iguodala um, also, I think, has had a neck injury, um, so they're not sure if he'd be available. Otto Porter is also day-to-day -day for the Warriors, so, you know, obviously... The Warriors bench could get a little bit deeper in the finals, so it'd be interesting to see if the Celtics go deeper in their bench. Um, taking a look at the series schedule, Game 1, obviously Thursday night in San Francisco, and then Game 2 will be Sunday. There will be an extra day off between Games 1 and 2. And then Game 3, the Celtics will have... Wednesday, next Wednesday at TD Garden, Game 4 will be next Friday. Um, and then after that, the series will go for Game 5 on June 13th, Game 6 on the 16th, and then Game 7 on the 19th, Games 5 through 7 are if necessary. So be interesting to see what happens Thursday night, Celtics and the Warriors tip off scheduled for 9 o'clock, as fun as that sounds. <laughs> So I think we're going to uh, turn our attention toward the Red Sox, who uh, appear to be doing a little bit better, although I think that I would have uh, liked for them to do a little bit better this weekend with the five games against the Orioles. The Red Sox went two and three during the uh, five, five game uh, series, whatever you want to call it, because I think that there was a game that had to be rescheduled because of a rainout. But the Celtics, or the, the Red Sox, dropped three out of five, which doesn't exactly make you feel good considering uh, Baltimore is not a very good team and this Red Sox have been uh, not very good against uh, division opponents this season. So that's a little bit concerning. But I think that you look at the overall of this team over the last 13 games, you know, nine wins in 13 games, you know, you'll take that especially after this team lost, you know, 22 of its first 36. So you kind of will take any type of hot streak that you can get. Um, I would say that, you know, clearly the offense has shown up over the last few weeks. You know, Trevor Story obviously had that monster, you know, 10 days or so where it seemed like he was hitting home runs every game. Um, I think it's cooled off a little bit in the last two of the last three of the Red Sox. Um, shut out last night and then lost 4-2 to two in the nightcap of the doubleheader Saturday night. Red Sox did uh, put out 12 runs in Sunday's win. It was six, five or six guys hit home runs, so 
that was a really positive sight. You know, I think that obviously the big guys on offense are going to do what they're going to do. You know, J.D. Martinez has been unbelievable. You know, I think he's been the best hitter in baseball so far this season, you know, hitting, uh, hitting, you know, 369, which I think is among the league, league leaders um, in, in average. So he's obviously not missed a beat. You know, he's been outstanding. You know, Devers, I think, honestly, if the Red Sox were playing a little bit better, he might be the front runner for MVP in the American League. Um, that's how that's how good he's been. You know, Bogarts has been great. I think that he's had some 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 quiet stretches, but I think that for the most part, he's back to doing what we expect him to do. But I think what's been most impressive um, has been the bottom of the order. There have been guys that have gotten some big hits and big situations. You know, I think Christian Vasquez is a guy that's come up big with a couple of big hits recently. You know, Franchi Cordero obviously had the walk-off Grand Slam not too long ago, but it seems like he has found a groove for the first time in his major league career. So it's good to have him hitting, you know, Jackie Bradley. I think, as I've said, really anything you can get from him offensively is a bonus, but he seems to be hitting pretty well, especially at home. So I think that it gives you confidence that not only are kind of the big guys producing, but some of the guys that you don't expect a lot of offense from are also producing. Um, you know, Bobby Dahlbeck hopefully has turned a bit of a corner. I think he's uh, 375 over his last two over his last few games. Um, he I think he's hit two home runs. Uh, hit two home runs. Uh, during the series against the Orioles. So, you know, hopefully he can kind of turn the page a little bit. Kike Hernandez also had a crazy hot streak where he, I think it was two of the three games against the White Sox, he hit home runs in, in the first step out of the game. So, you know, the Red Sox, I think, would like for him to continue to hit because I think he just makes, it makes such a difference when your leadoff guy can get on base, when your leadoff guy can get extra base hits. I think it just makes everything so much easier for the rest of the offense. So, you know, offense really seems to be showing up everywhere, um, which is great. You know, I think it just shows you that, okay, this team can kind of just get their offensive legs going. You know, they'll be fine. You know, obviously 23 and 26 is not really where they want to be 49 games into the season, but it does seem like they've kind of turned a little bit of a corner with, you know, nine wins in their last 13 um, and they welcome in the Reds for two games today and tomorrow. The Reds have the worst record in baseball. So, you know, hopefully the Red Sox can take care of business before they go out west. Uh, we'll take a look at the schedule in a few minutes. Uh, but obviously I mentioned J.D. Martinez and how good he's been. 369 this season, um, you know, really performing like the best hitter in baseball so far this season. It's been uh, a tremendous uh, joy to watch him perform offensively for all the years that he's been with the Red Sox. It's, you know, it's tremendous because I think that, you know, his, the way that he approaches hitting is kind of a rubbed off on some of the other guys. And, you know, maybe it's not obvious at times, but I think that, you know, having a guy like Martinez around the team and, you know, with what he can do offensively, I think it makes a huge difference for some of the other guys, some of the young guys who, you know, want to continue to, you know, get better and evolve their swing and be a lot more dangerous offensively. So I think he, 
you know, it's definitely going to be different, you know, when he's not here, whenever that is, you know, I think he's in the last year of his contract, but I think, you know, he's just been amazing to watch in, in his tenure with the Red Sox. And I think, um, you know, has really become one of the premier hitters in Major League Baseball. So really excited to see how well he's been doing. Um, I think the Red Sox would like to see his home runs be up, but I think, you know, as long as he's hitting for average, it's really all that matters. Um, so looking at the Red Sox in the pitching rotation, obviously it was not a great outing for Rich Hill yesterday, but I think for the most part, the Red Sox rotation has kind of been what has kept them semi-afloat in the first couple months of the season when they weren't scoring. Um, you know, I think that Pavetta recently has been a huge, a huge bright spot, you know, and I know we talked about him last week, but, you know, again, he comes in with a, I think he pitched a, I think he pitched on Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. Or whenever he last pitched, he pitched really well. Uh, wasn't the complete game, but I think it was whatever whatever the last game that he pitched. I'm having a hard time remembering. Yes, it was Sunday in the 12-2 game. I think he went pretty far in that game, went six innings. Yeah, went six innings, giving up five hits, one earned run. Um, you know, he's been tremendous, and I think really you get him to start pitching and pitching at a high clip it really kind of helps out the, the Red Sox with what they can do offensively. You know, now that you have the pitching and the offense kind of playing well together, you know, at a key moment, you know, Nathan Navaldi also went, you know, the full distance Saturday with a, with a complete game. Um, I will tell you, complete games are very hard to come by, especially this day and age with, with baseball and the, the specialists and the relievers and all that. But, yeah, the Red Sox have two of the seven complete games in Major League Baseball this season, so uh, pretty impressive with this team, but I think, you know, Pavetta's been really solid lately. Evaldi, I think, is always a solid pitcher. You know, I think that when uh, Waka has been healthy, he's pitched really well. He's kind of been, kind of been a revelation for this team. You know, I think Hill is going to be what he's going to be. You know, I think most of the time he'll give you four or five solid innings, obviously, was not the case last night. He gave up six runs, but I think the majority of the time the Red Sox throw out their starters, they're going to do really well. So, you know, pretty happy with where they are, where they are now versus where they were a couple of weeks ago. You know, obviously at three games under 500, they would like to be a little bit better. You know, I think honestly, the next kind of the next kind of hurdle for this team is to get up over 500. Um, and then we can kind of start, you know, getting into some thinking about kind of the wild card chase and all that. Um, but yeah, you know, as I said, this West Coast road trip, you know, might reveal a lot, a lot about this team. So very curious to see what goes on with that. So the Red Sox will play a two game set against Cincinnati tonight and on Wednesday night. Michael Walker will go tonight. Garrett Whitlock will go Wednesday. And then the Red Sox are off to uh, Oakland for a three-game set. And then the Red Sox will play four in Los Angeles against the Angels. And then three against Seattle against the Mariners. So we'll see how the Red Sox can do 
um, off on the road, off on the West Coast, as they will play 10 road games. It's always kind of interesting to see how they do on these West Coast road trips. You know, three games against Oakland. Oakland's had a really tough time this season, so, you know, hopefully if the Red Sox are playing some kind of lesser opponents, they can get into more of a rhythm. You know, the Angels have been pretty good this season, so that's going to be an interesting series to watch. So I think that that probably will will do it with the Red Sox. We will circle back to take a look at uh, Major League Baseball standings later. Uh, I figured that it made a little sense to focus a little bit on the Bruins. Um, they are in, in the offseason, but I figured that there were some things that we could get to today. Um, you know, I realized that I didn't really do this last week when we were talking about the Bruins, but I think it makes sense to take a look at some of the guys who are going to be free agents and kind of what what the Bruins are thinking, what I am personally thinking. Um, and these aren't just free agents that are on the Bruins. We'll probably take a look at some guys who are in Providence. So obviously the big one is Patrice Bergeron. You know, I think the Bruins obviously are going to be in good contact with him, depending on what his decision is going to be, whether he wants to return, whether he wants to retire, you know, and if he does return, what are those contract numbers look like but I think honestly if you're asking me I would like Patrice Bergeron to return you know I don't think that that's and that's not really a question I don't really think the Bruins should move on from him that's not really um, something that I would like for them to do but obviously depends on his decision but I think obviously he is someone that you re-sign um, Curtis Lazar um, is also a free agent I thought that he played really well um, in the playoffs, um, and I think it's a really solid, you know, bottom six player. I think that he's proven himself as a solid NHL player. I think he might, you know, price himself out of Boston, you know, and I'm not saying that he's going to make five, six million dollars, but I think when you look at kind of the bottom six, that's kind of an area that you can kind of I don't want to say leave to younger players, but I think that kind of those bottom six guys, you should be, they are kind of, I don't want to say easily replaceable, but I think you look at some of the guys that Bruins have, you know, Chris Wagner, Oscar Steen, Trent Frederick, Thomas Nosek. I mean, I think you have a lot of guys that can kind of fill that role. So I think, you know, you know, and then you also think about someone like Mark McLaughlin, who I think, played really, really well in the games that he played. So I think, you know, Lazar is someone that I think, sure, would it be nice to have him back, I think. But I also think that there is going to be another team out there that's going to offer him, you know, a good amount of money that I think the Bruins are just going to be like, ah, whatever, you know, we'll we'll take the loss on that and we'll hope that, you know, one of the guys that I mentioned, you know, can kind of slide into that spot. Um, Anton Bleed, you know, I think is also kind of is, is in a similar boat just because I think he's also a bottom six forward. I thought that he played really well in the games that he played this season, but I think, you know, this is difficult because I think at times the Bruins, you know, chose not to play him at certain points. And so I think that kind of tells me that they, I mean, I don't want to say that, oh, like they don't want him around because I feel like that sounds really harsh, but it just seemed like the Bruins had, you know, opportunities to put him in the lineup 
especially in the playoffs, and they didn't do it. And so it kind of makes me think that, okay, they're probably going to move on from him. You know, I think that it's not the worst thing in the world if he does leave, because I think the Bruins have some guys that can kind of fill those type of roles and, you know, bleed with someone who is an extra forward anyway. So, you know, it's not like you're losing a lineup contributor like Lazar, but I think the Bruins will be fine. If both of those guys leave, you know, I'm not going to be surprised if either of them leaves. I mean, I think that in terms of the forwards, Bergeron's the only guy that you really want to focus on. Um, defensively, the Bruins have uh, seven guys who are under contract, including Jakob, Jakob Zaborl, who signed a two-year deal a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Josh Brown is an unrestricted free agent. Bruins acquired him from Ottawa at the trade deadline, only played... A couple of games for the Bruins. I don't see him returning uh, with the Bruins having, you know, seven guys already signed. So I don't see him coming back. You know, I think the Bruins maybe would have liked for him to make a little bit more of an impact. But I think, you know, Connor Clifton was a guy that I think started to play really good hockey after Brown was acquired, kind of showing the Bruins that, you know, I don't need to, I don't need to be replaced over here. So um, but credit to Clifton, I thought that he played really well in the playoffs. You know, he's a guy that I feel like I've always been hard on. Um, but I think he deserves a lot of credit for, you know, making making himself into a really, really solid NHL player. So Josh Brown, I don't think, is coming back. Um, and then in terms of other free agents in Providence or in the organization that played some games for the Bruins... Um, Jack Stanika is a restricted free agent, so I'm curious to see what the Bruins think with him. But I think, honestly, the Bruins probably would want to keep him around. You know, I think that he's not exactly made the NHL impact that the Bruins are hoping that he would. But, you know, maybe he's just a late bloomer and the Bruins can, you know, bring him back on a relatively cheap deal um, and see what he can do. You know, I think that especially if Bergeron retires. He's someone that it makes sense to keep keep around because he's a center. And the Bruins, you know, as it is, are pretty thin already. And, the, you know, if Bergeron leaves, then that, you know, creates a huge hole. So I think the Bruins will want to bring him back. Um, Stephen Fogarty, I believe, was signed to a one-year deal in the summer. Um, you know, didn't make... Didn't make any impact. I actually don't even think he got into he got into two games with the Bruins. Played 62 games in Providence at 42 points. So I don't really see him coming back. Jesper Frodeen is someone that I'm curious about. He played some games for the Bruins this season. Played seven. Um, and honestly, I thought looked pretty good. But I think that he was kind of brought in as organizational depth. And so I think the Bruins could find guys like that elsewhere. So... You know, I'm curious to see what the Bruins think with him, but I think if they do bring him back, it's going to be a very cheap, very cheap contract. Um, but then I think looking at the rest of the guys, you know, Jack Ashan is a restricted free agent. He probably returns. I thought that he played well in the games that he played. Um, but I think other than that, there aren't really any other free agents that it makes sense to, to talk about. Um, and then obviously, you know, mentioning Bergeron and you know, his decision. I think that, you know, the Bruins could be in a really tough spot if he does decide to retire, because I think you look at the the guys who played center on this team this year, 
you know, Charlie Coyle, Eric Holla, you know, I think to their, to their defense, I did think that both of them played really, really well this season, but I think asking one of them to kind of be the number one center, I think might be too much to ask. Um, you know, Nosek played center at times, but I think that there's no one currently on your roster that you have confidence in to kind of be that number one guy if Bergeron does decide to walk away. Um, you know, oddly enough, this free agent class is pretty deep in terms of, you know, guys who who are centers. And I think, unfortunately, the Bruins may have spent too much money last offseason. Um, although I also feel like, you know, if the Bruins didn't spend as much money as they did last offseason, you know, people would have been like, oh, well, why aren't you spending your money? So I just think, like, you know, yeah, the Bruins may have overspent last summer, but I also think, like, I, I don't know. It's kind of a it's kind of a, a conversation that I don't think it makes sense to have right now. But I think, you know, looking at some of the guys who are centers that are, are available, you know, obviously the big ones, Evgeny Malkin, um, Claude Giroux, you know, I think those are kind of the big guys. You know, Johnny Gaudreau, although I don't really think he's going to be available. Well, he actually technically is a winger, but I think that he can, could play center. Uh, Kadri, Nazem Kadri also is another guy um, who is, could be available on the free agent market. So I think, you know, obviously if the Bruins do choose to go that route, they would need to get creative because they only have about two and a half million dollars in cap space. So, you know, they don't really have a lot of space. So I think if Bergeron does retire and the Bruins are serious about bringing in, you know, kind of a replacement, if you will, they would need to clear some, some space. So I think, you know, some of those guys could be possible. You know, I think Giroux could be someone that could sign kind of a, a cheaper deal because it kind of seems to me like he's at the point where he might be, you know, cup chasing. And I think, you know, the Bruins could bring him in, although I think Bergeron's not there. It might make things a little more difficult. Um, but I also think if Bergeron's not here, the Bruins might be forced to be as aggressive as they can, you know, bring in someone like Kadri and, you know, pay him a hefty chunk of change. But then obviously they would need to move some move some guys around. So I'm kind of curious to see what's next for this team. You know, Ryan Strom could be someone that they bring in on a free agent deal. Trocek from Carolina, potentially. Um, but I think that he's a guy that's had a bit of an injury history, and I don't think that it would make sense to bring him in. I think especially if they're asking him to play heavy minutes. Um, you know, obviously... The one wild card that we've not talked about is David Krejci. And I think, you know, I go back and forth because obviously, like, if if David does want, did want to return and come back to the Bruins, I would welcome him with open arms. But I think it's hard to kind of put your chips in that basket because, you know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know what he's thinking. You know, I think that he went to or last season, went home to play professionally in front of his family. And I think, you know, it's it's hard to know whether he would want to return. But, you know, I think that Don Sweeney's always kept the door open. So, you know, if he does want to return, that would be great. But I think 
it's it's hard for me to kind of bank on that and be like, oh, well, if Wolf Krejci comes back, you know, they'd be fine. You know, I also think that if the Bruins did get word that David does want to return, it would make me believe that Patrice Bergeron would want to continue playing. But, you know, I think that's just kind of speculation at this point. But, you know, he's another option at center, you know, if he does indeed want to come back. Um, but again, I'm trying not to put all my eggs in that basket, but uh, we'll see what happens. And then in terms of, you know, clearing some cap space, if the Bruins were interested in going to get any of those centers that I mentioned, you know, I think some of the, the obvious guys would be Jake DeBrusque and Mike Riley. You know, I think that DeBrusque obviously has that trade request that is, you know, still out there. You know, I don't believe that he's rescinded it. So I think, you know, he could be someone that could be moved to free up some space. You know, Mike Riley is also another guy that could be moved, you know, kind of ended up being a seventh defenseman for this team this year. So I think that he's made it clear that he kind of doesn't want to be that guy. So, you know, the Bruins could trade him. You know, I think that if the Bruins are trying to move salary, you're probably not getting a lot in return for both of those guys if they get traded. You know, I think that if the Bruins are trying to, you know, move salary, they would trade those guys for draft picks. And I think thinking how well DeBrusque played at the end of the year, you know, he could fetch you a higher return than maybe you could have gotten at the trade deadline. You know, I think it is possible you could get him for a couple of second round picks, you could get a maybe at least a third for Mike Riley um, and try to recoup some of the draft capital that you lost in the Lindholm trade. Um, so I think that kind of, to me, though, well, you know, it could hinge on Bergeron's status, but it could not. You know, I think that even if Bergeron does return, the Bruins probably do want to look for more center help. You know, I think that Hall obviously is going to still be here. Charlie Coyle is going to still be here. But I think, you know, you could get Bergeron to return. You could sign one of those center guys. You know, I think that it would make sense to get some draft capital for DeBrusque and or Riley. You know, I think a lot of people are thinking, oh, you know, you could get a good player for DeBrusque. But I think the Bruins might just be in a better space to get some draft picks for him. Um, and they might be able to get some high picks, you know, because you look at the Bruins not having a first-round pick this year, um, and they don't have a second-round pick the next two years. So, you know, you could get some picks back uh, for someone like DeBrusque. And then obviously, you know, the Bruins could make a move in the trade market. You know, they could try to go and get Mark Shifley from Winnipeg, you know, if they are indeed willing to kind of trade some of their big players. I think a lot of it depends on if Winnipeg hires, you know, a coach that, you know, might be more apt to, you know, coach a team that's a potential playoff team. So meaning if Winnipeg, for example, hired Barry Trotz, you know, they're probably not going to be trading any of their big time players. Um, but I think that they're a situation to monitor um, in the trade market, you know, for a center. Um, Vancouver, I think, also is a team to keep your eye on. You know, I think that they had a really good second half of the year. You know, ever since Bruce Boudreaux came in, they played really, really well. But, 
you know, who knows? I'd be curious to see those two teams that the Bruins could make moves for a Mark Shifley or a JT Miller. Um, that would be very interesting to pay attention to if the Bruins um, think that it would be a better play to get a center in the trade market. Um, so I think that probably does it for the Bruins. Just some thoughts that I had. Uh, we're going to take a turn to look at the Revolution, who returned to MLS action this weekend after a loss in the U.S. Open Cup to NYCFC. Uh, the Revs with a 1-1 tie against Philadelphia on Saturday night. I think that it was a game that, again, you would have felt better about this game if the Revolution had been able to hang on to the three points and not settle for a tie. Um, and so, you know, it just, it seems like too often this season, the Revs are having games where, you know, they score first or score a goal at a big moment, and you feel really good about the team being able to pick up three points, but then they allow a bad goal, or they allow something, you know, soon after that go-ahead goal, and then they have to settle for a point, which it's like, you'll take points, and I think because the Revolution have had such a hard time out of the gate this year, you will take points. But it's just hard when, you know, you drop points like that. And the Revolution are trying to, you know, get back into playoff positioning and you keep dropping points. So, you know, one positive, though, Gustavo both did return to the lineup and did score um, on a penalty kick. So that was good to see. Um, you know, he's been out for a little bit with an injury, so... It's good to see him back in the fold because I just think he makes their offense so much more dangerous. You know, you have someone that's a threat, you know, pretty much anywhere around the box. You know, he's a guy that's a threat that can, you know, shoot from distance, um, but also has a great finishing ability that we've seen over the last two years. But, you know, it just it's just too bad because that's a game that you want to have. You know, one of your best players returns, scores a goal, and you can't hold on to the lead. It's just like those losses, I feel like, are so devastating to a team that has kind of been middling around the bottom of the Eastern Conference standings. Um, I think that currently they're just two points out of a playoff spot, but there are a lot of teams that are in a similar position to the Revs. And so it's like, you know, you would like those one-point games to turn into three-point games. You know, if the Revs could, could, could have won a couple of those games they probably would be in playoff position. So, you know, I think they just have to remain trying to stay positive and, you know, not letting a game like that become, you know, a huge issue. But, you know, it's it's hard when the defense can't hold leads when there are certain players that just simply should not be on the field. And I know I've said this plenty of times about Omar Gonzalez, but I just feel like, he is a liability on the field and the revolution can't afford to keep playing him. You know, it's just, it's gotten to a point where he's making mistakes that are directly costing them points and are directly costing them, you know, wins or points or any of that. Um, and I think, you know, me on this podcast, you all know me. I try to be as optimistic as I can. I try not to go into the kind of, doom and gloom that a lot of people tend to go into when it comes to Boston sports. But I think 
you know, it's it's hard to stay positive when you can see that Omar Gonzalez just honestly doesn't belong on the field. And as I've said before, I understand the thought process in bringing him in because he's a good locker room guy. He's a guy that Bruce Arena trusts. He's won championships because I think that that type of experience is important to the revolution. But it's just like when he's costing you games and costing you points, it's, it's hard for me to justify putting him on the field. Um, and obviously the Revolution have had some injuries here and there, so it's not always perfect that, you know, in my opinion, Kessler and Farrell should be playing every single game at central defense, but obviously if there are injuries or if there's something that comes up, Gonzalez can be put in there, but, you know, it's just, it's get, yeah, it's getting to a point that, you know, he's costing them points, and the Revolution really with the position that they're in, they can't afford to be throwing away points. Um, and that, you know, gaffe or mistake or whatever you want to call it, toward the end of that Philly game was really bad. Really bad. You know, that's one of the ugliest plays I've ever seen. Uh, but it's just, it's it's really just kind of mind-boggling that the coaching staff continues to put him out there. And I just feel like, you know, what are they thinking exactly? You know, they have to have seen the mistakes that he's made and it's just like he's a vet he's a vet he's been around you know this is not a guy who's a young player who you're like okay you know you can put up with with mistakes he's a guy that's in his 30s he shouldn't be making these mistakes and it's just like it's kind of unbelievable to me that the coaching staff continues to put him in games you know sub him in have him start games it's just like the, the leadership and the championship pedigree can only get you so far. And it's just, he shouldn't be playing. Like, I just, he should not be playing at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, we'll see how the Reds do in the next few weeks. I think that they have uh, some time off because of the international uh, breaks. There are some international games coming up. We'll actually talk about that in a little bit. Uh, the Revs' next game is June 12th against Sporting Kansas City. That is on the road at 3 o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. So we will take a look now that we are through talking about the New England teams. I know that maybe some of you would expect that I talk a bit about the Patriots, but things are a little quiet for the Patriots right now. Not really a lot going on, but we'll obviously keep you updated if anything changes. Um, well, obviously, we'll talk a bit about the NFL in a few minutes. Just go through some notes. So, taking a look at some events that do not involve Boston teams, we're going to take a look at the Stanley Cup playoffs and where things stand right now. The New York Rangers with a win in Carolina last night, 6-2, to two, Game 7. So the Rangers advance to the conference final where they will play the Tampa Bay Lightning game, one of that series, scheduled to start tomorrow night. Really excited for this series. I think that uh, both of these series, and we'll talk about the West in a minute, but both of these series, I think, have the potential to be really good six or seven game series that, you know, both teams, I think, are decently matched. Um, I think Tampa Bay, when you've seen how well they've played in the playoffs, I think they are certainly a team that is a threat to win. You know, they are certainly a threat to win their third straight Stanley Cup, but they also are coming off a pretty huge rest period. 
and I'm a little bit concerned because they don't have home ice in this conference final series. The Rangers have home ice because they uh, were the number two seed, had more points than Tampa Bay, who was a three seed in the Atlantic. Um, you know, I think that the home ice could prove to be huge for the Rangers. I think they've played really well at home this postseason. Um, so they will open up the first two games of that series in New York. Um, uh, obviously, Tampa Bay, we know what they can do offensively. You know, Andre Vasilevsky has been pretty amazing in these playoffs. You know, I think if there was ever any doubt about his game, he has proven that he is still arguably the best goalie in the league. You know, I think that he's obviously had some had some issues this season in the regular season, but he's been unbelievable in the playoffs. And, you know, as good as Igor Shosturkin was in the in the regular season, the postseason, his play has slipped a little bit, but I think that he's kind of got his groove back. He was really good um, early in that Game 7 against Carolina last night. So I think that this goalie matchup is the premier goalie matchup in the playoffs. You know, it's arguably, in my opinion, the two best goalies in the league right now. So that's going to be really exciting. But I think, you know, curious to see about the special teams for these two teams. Um, obviously, the Rangers, we know what they can do on the power play. Uh, second in the playoffs. That there's the second second in the playoffs with power play percentage um, at 32.5%. Know what they can do. On the power play, you know, Adam Fox, Chris Kreider, Panarin, who, you know, has not really made much of an impact in these playoffs. You know, he could be dealing with an injury. You know, I think at this point in the playoffs, everyone's dealing with something. So, you know, that could be a possibility. But the Rangers just are so dangerous on the power play. And I think that, you know, one of the critiques of this team throughout the season has been that they don't score enough at five on five. And I think. You know, that's certainly true, but if they can score on the power play and they can score against Tampa Bay's penalty kill, that's really, really good. You know, that could be a tipping point in the series. Um, but I think, honestly, it's going to come down to which team can score enough in the bottom six. And I think the Rangers, you know, with their kid line of Heedle and uh, Kako and Lafreniere, they've been really effective at times. You know, and they've been hard to play against, and... Speaking of hard to play against, you know, Tampa Bay has got a couple of guys, you know, Alex Kalorn, Pat Maroon, you know, some of those big guys have played really good hockey at times. You know, Corey Perry has been really good. Uh, Nick Paul has been really outstanding as they got him um, from Ottawa at the trade deadline. But, man, I'm just so excited for this series. I think it's going to be a six or seven game series. I honestly think the Rangers are going to win this series. I think that... They will have the home ice, and that will be enough. But, man, look out for Tampa Bay and the way that they're playing. Um, they have really shown everyone that they are, you know, still a really damn good hockey team. You know, they made it look easy against the best against the best team in the league. And that's kind of what scares me about this team, is if they could make it look so easy against Florida, you know, it's... <laughs> You know, I don't think you want them to get to the finals because I think they will win. Um, but I think that the Rangers will be able to do enough 
in this series to be able to advance, but it's hard for me to really pick a winner, but I think that the Rangers kind of have what it takes, and I think that defense will step up really big, and I think Shesterkin has his best series of the playoffs um, in this series, and I do, do have the Rangers advancing. So taking a look at the Western Conference, another really exciting series you have, um, Edmonton against the Colorado Avalanche. You know, Edmonton, it's kind of a, it's a bit of a surprise that they're here. You know, I did not think that they were going to win that second round series, but, you know, McDavid and Tricidal have done what they do. Um, but the Oilers have also gotten some good production from other places, which I think is honestly why they're here. You know, Vander Kane has been unbelievable. I think he leads the playoffs with 12 goals. Zach Hyman has six goals in his last five playoff games. He's been huge. So I think, you know, for Edmonton, it's basically just McDavid and Dreisaitl and get out of the, and, and, you know, everyone else gets out of the way. But, you know, they've been, got, they've been getting some great production from guys kind of lower in the lineup. Ryan Nugent Hopkins had a really good regular season, and he's followed it up with a really good playoff. He has 11 points in 12 games, um, so I think, you know, he's someone that could make a huge difference um, in this series. Special teams is going to be huge. You know, one of the interesting parts about this series is Colorado is not a very good penalty-killing team, and they really have not been the entire season. And if you look at Edmonton, you have McDavid and Dreisaitl, you know, arguably the two best power play players in the in the league. And so I think it could be a huge, huge tipping point in the series if Edmonton can score at a high rate on the power play. Um, but, you know, also that could turn the other way. You know, Colorado, they have a lot of talent um, on the power play, but Edmonton's penalty kill has been pretty solid um, in the playoffs so far. And I think they're a team that's gotten surprisingly good goaltending from Mike Smith. You know, obviously, there are always concerns with him that it's kind of like you're either going to get a good game or a bad game. But I think that for the most part, he's had good games. You know, save percentage of 927. I think that, honestly, he's been better than, than Darcy Kemper has been for uh, Colorado. And it's not that Darcy Kemper's been bad, but I think... Mike Smith. Mike Smith has played really well when it's mattered most. So I think, you know, it's an interesting series because Edmonton seems to be kind of a top-heavy team with what they can do scoring. But, you know, the Avalanche are kind of a team that can spread it around. I mean, obviously, McKinnon's an outstanding player, but, you know, Kadri's had a really good playoff. You have Ranton and you have Atlanta's Landeskog. Um, you have a bottom six that I think has been really good throughout the playoffs for the Avs. You know, Burakovsky, Comfer, um, Arturi Lekkinen, Nachushkin. I mean, some of those guys aren't necessarily bottom six, but some of those guys are, you know, offensive players that you don't think of immediately when you think of Colorado. But, you see, this is hard because, you know... Colorado really has not faced any type of adversity in these playoffs, and that's kind of what's interesting to me. 
you know, Edmonton, I think it took them a little longer than it should have in the first round, but they won, you know, and then took care of a, of a Calgary team that I think a lot of people, including myself, thought was going all the way. So, you know, this is an Edmonton group that has really impressed me these playoffs, but I think Colorado, it's just, they're just too deep, especially defensively. Um, and I think that is what could make the difference. But if Edmonton can score at a high clip on the power play, they're going to win this series because they just think, you know, Colorado's penalty kill with as kind of average or less than average as it is, you know, Edmonton, if they're scoring power play goals, it really could change um, the really could change the, the whole complexion of the series. But I do like Colorado to win this series. But honestly, you know, picking Colorado and picking the Rangers, I really don't think that, you know, they're locks to win the series. I mean, I really think that there is a chance that you could see any four or any combination of uh, teams in the Stanley Cup final. I really think that all four of these teams have a legitimate chance to, to win. So... That is going to be really, really exciting. Um, so moving on, take a look at the NBA. Some notes outside of the playoffs. The Lakers hiring Darvin Ham as their next head coach. Ham was an assistant coach with the Bucks the last two seasons. Um, he was also someone that was uh, up for being a head coach last season but ultimately didn't get hired. I mean, honestly, it's a good hire for the Lakers. I think it makes a lot of sense. You know, I think that they have a lot of work to do with their roster, but I think, you know, getting a coach that I think is going to be someone that can relate to the players. You know, I think LeBron always already likes the hire, um, but I think really, truly with this team, it's the players that are on the team. I mean, I think that Hiring a coach like Darvin Ham is great because they think that he's going to get that team focused, but that has to be the right group of players. So I'm curious to see how that goes over. Uh, CJ McCollum of the Pelicans is joining ESPN as an NBA analyst. You've seen a couple of guys do that, uh, namely Patrick Beverly, which is a bit of a controversial choice on ESPN's part, but uh, hey, the NBA likes content. Um, and not controversial in like a negative way, but like, you know, he's a guy that if you're in, if you see if, you know, you know who he is based on his play in the NBA, you know that he's kind of a guy that likes to talk a lot of trash and, you know, likes to share a lot of things that uh, maybe other people wouldn't share, you know, sharing some comments about Chris Paul, but, you know, I really don't really want to say anything else, but. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what uh, CJ can bring to uh, the ESPN crew. It's kind of interesting how you've seen that. Um, I think especially over the last few years, there have been NBA guys who, you know, get eliminated and, you know, they want to kind of give their insight. So I'm kind of curious to see what that's going to look like uh, for for him. I think the Warriors are officially uh, betting favorites in the finals, but don't think that matters much to the Celtics. Uh, really looking forward to the finals that will get started on Thursday in San Francisco. Celtics and Warriors. Seems like finally we've gotten a Celtics-Warriors uh, finals matchup. So I think we'll take a look at some baseball, baseball notes. Um, 
Gabe Kapler, I believe, was intending to uh, protest the um, national anthem because of the uh, because of the recent spate of uh, gun violence in um, the U.S. But I think he was deciding to put his protest on hold for uh, Memorial Day. Uh, the Phillies are not playing super well. Joe Girardi, uh, not necessarily concerned about his job, but, you know, Philadelphia is a team that they're not really in a good spot right now. A couple of players being put on the IL, the um, injured list, and the son of Roger Clemens is now in the major leagues after the Tigers added Colby to their major league roster. So now we're going to take a look at the Major League Baseball standings. The Red Sox currently sit 23-26, and 26, 10 and a half games out of first place. The Yankees still maintain their lead atop the AL East, a five-game lead over Tampa Bay. In the Central, the Twins lead the division 29-20. and 20. They are four and a half games up on the White Sox, who are in second in the West. You have Houston atop the division at 31 and 18, four games up on the Angels. In the National League, the Mets continue to play really good baseball. They are at 33 and 17, nine and a half games ahead of second place Atlanta. The Brewers are atop the Central, 32 and 18. They have a four game lead over the Cardinals. And then the Dodgers lead the National League West by three games over the Padres. The Dodgers sit at 33 and 15. So you have a lot of teams that have gotten off to good starts so far this season. So now we're gonna jump ahead to talking about some football. Um, Aaron Donald apparently at peace with potentially retiring. I know that that was a kind of a, a big rumor after the Super Bowl, but curious to see if that you know, goes anywhere. Um, the Texans signing uh, Foster Moreau, formerly, uh, or Fabian Moreau, excuse me. Um, oh, I was thinking of someone else. Fabian Moreau is a cornerback, so he was signed with the Houston Texans yesterday. Um, and the Vikings wide receiver, Adam Thielen, feels rejuvenated for his 10th uh, year. Um, and then also... Very sad news that uh, came out yesterday. The uh, Arizona Cardinals. Some sad news to report out of Dallas. Sorry about that. Um, Arizona Cardinals cornerback uh, Jeff Gladney uh, was sadly killed in a car accident um, early Monday morning. He was 25. Uh, it was a first round pick of the Vikings in 2010. Um, so obviously, you know, really feeling for, for his family and you know, it's just, it's really just tragic when things like this happen. And I think that, you know, um, a lot of us, you know, take, take our lives for granted, you know, and, and realize that things can be taken away from you, you know, in the blink of an eye. And I think it just kind of tells me personally that, you know, you want to, you know, spend as much time with, with people that love you because, you know, you, you never know what can happen. So um, obviously our, our hearts go out to the Gladney family and 
the the Arizona Cardinals who have uh, lost a lost a teammate. So I think I'm gonna move on. Talk a little bit about some uh, U.S. U.S. soccer. Talking about the men who have some um, upcoming international friendlies. Uh, the U.S. team will take on Morocco tomorrow at 7.30 in an international friendly in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, and then they will play another game against Uruguay on Sunday at 5 o'clock. Both of these games are being te televised. Sunday's game is in Kansas City, Missouri. So Wednesday's game is at 7.30. Sunday's game is at 5. Um, so the reason why we're talking about this is... Our uh, guest this week on Guest Friday is a returning guest, John Veneziano, who will join the show to talk about the uh, U.S. men's national team and there's their international friendlies and then their upcoming CONCACAF Nations League matchups um, against Granada and El Salvador. So John will give you a breakdown of the, the rosters and the games that are coming up and you know, these will kind of be some tune-up games for uh, the national team as they get ready for the World Cup in November. So really looking forward to that interview. That will be this week on Guest Friday, so be sure to tune in. Um, also would like to remind you guys again, if you haven't already, to go listen to last week's Guest Friday with John Sexton. It was a great interview again. Um, hopefully you get to talk to John at some point later in the season. Uh, but really had fun with that interview last week. So I think that that will do it for today. Um, as always, you can listen to the pod on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. You know, please would really appreciate, you know, a, a rating or a review or any of those things. You know, any, any type of, you know, any type of comments are really appreciated. You know, if there's anything that you guys, you folks feel you would like for me to focus more on, you know, any type of constructive criticism, I'm always open to that. Um, and if you're ever interested in coming on to a guest Friday, you know, you can just let me know, you can DM me on, on Twitter, you can send me a message on Facebook. Um, you know, always, always looking forward to, you know, do kind of more of a in, interact with our fans a little bit more. So, um, everyone enjoy the rest of your week, you know, stay cool, because I think it's going to be hot for the next couple of days, um, so yeah, everyone enjoy the weather, and uh, we'll be back with you folks on Friday for Guest Friday. <laughs>